Whoa, easy there, Greg. <laughs> that wasn't me. That was the ketchup bottle. Are you sure about that, Dad? <laughs> yeah, I'm very sure. I didn't cut a fart at Christmas dinner. I wouldn't do that. Welcome to Blood and Black Rum Podcast's Festivus Series. This year, we're bringing you all kinds of Yuletide classics, such as Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, They Did It Again, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Oh, James Bond, you seasonal scoundrel, Trading Places, where people are just shitty, and The Santa Clauses, the newest conservative Disney Plus TV show. We hope you enjoy all season long. Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSploitation.com, and I'm joined with my co-host, Martin. How's it going? All it's right. Christmas! It's, it's Christmas time again. Yep. Christmas! We, second episode in our Festivus series. Um, Eight years running. Honestly, I'm surprised we're already, it's like December 7th already. I don't know where the time's gone. So. Uh, well, you wouldn't know because we, it's during <clears throat> the middle of monsoon season right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no... No here, in up, here. here in upstate New York, yeah. you'd think it was, we were down in, uh, down in Thailand or something with the heavy rain we've been getting of late. It's fucking ridiculous. My Apple phone is like mocking me every day, like, you haven't moved enough. And it's like, yeah, I know. It's been raining out. It's, you want me to do? it's <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're, so we're back with another, uh, episode of a Christmas movie. And, and this time I let Martin decide one of the movies and. It's a bad decision. I, it was not. I, a I bad should decision. not have allowed him to decide because we're going to talk about a movie that is, I feel, is only tangentially related to Christmas, and and has very little Christmas spirit whatsoever. That's not true at all. You disagree. Mm-hmm. Wholeheartedly and full throatedly. Okay. We're doing Honor Majesty's Secret Service finally. Yeah. I mean, we've only done one Bond film so far, but I mean. This is one that you have wanted to do. Well, I would like to do all of them one of the, one of these days, but uh, all twenty seven. No, not definitely not in a row. <laughs> no. That Roger Moore era is rough. Um, this no, is, it's, this is only it, my like fourth or fifth. Man, no, probably like fifth or sixth Bond film. No, I've you've seen. you you've seen from Russia with Love. You've seen mm-hmm. this. You've seen Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. You've seen Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. You've seen GoldenEye. Mm-hmm. I imagine you've seen the world is not enough. No, I haven't actually. I haven't oh. I haven't seen it. So, like I've you s- seen like six. You saw Skyfall. Yeah, I think you I've s- seen six. Never but, been. Never. Never. Just really didn't get into the the Bond universe for whatever reason. So here's why I would say this is Christmas related. Not just because there is Christmas in this mm-hmm. film. Sleigh bells ringing, ting ting tingling, and all that fun stuff. It's 2003. It's about 10 days to two weeks out to Christmas. Okay. Setting the stage. All right. Young Chris Martin is sitting down watching TV. Big fan of Goldeneye. The game, the movie. That's how I got into the Bond franchise. The game, the movie, you know, the Pierce Brosnan movies. Mm-hmm. Die Another Day just came out and it was total dog shit. And you don't like Christmas at all. What's going on over at the Spike Network? The 12 Merry Days of Bond, baby. Where 
has nothing to do with Christmas, but you know what you get? A fucking marathon for 12 days straight. A spike playing what? Nothing but Bond films from like 2002 to 2004. Every Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the New Year's for like 12 fucking days, you would get for like three years straight them playing every Connery film, almost every Moore film, couple of the Brosnan, one of the Daltons, and you would be like, I'm going to and that's all they played all day. Sit so that for me, and I sat down and I fucking watched it, and you know what? That right there is why, not just this film, but Bond is Christmas to me. Because you got the 12 married days of bond coming up on Spike. Okay. Um, Followed by Mansers. (laughs) Well, I I guess I'll, like, I I wouldn't say the same about the other Bonds, but I'll allow it for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It does. It is the outside, I would say, it's literally the only Bond film out. That has Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is the one that actually does take place in small part during Christmas. Um, you'll probably go for about an hour without even getting the me- a mention of the word Christmas. Like, especially at the beginning of the film, what screams uh, Christmas to you more than stepping out of your sandals, running down the beach, and almost drowning in the water? Oh, I thought you were going to say Bond throwing a knife at a calendar. And or, or, September yeah, yeah, that one too. Yep. <laughs> Bond throwing a knife at the calendar and clearly marking that it's not December. Yep. There's another good one. Um, well, not all Christmas films have to take place right around exactly That's true. Christmas. Like White like, Christmas is one of those movies that has Christmas in it quite a bit, but it also doesn't take place all the time at Christmas. So, Like we we've seen enough you know, a Christmas carols. We don't need fucking Scrooge running around going, it's Christmas, it's Christmas time! <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sometimes your Tiny Tim's uh, Blofeld, uh, Telly Savalas with uh, no earlobes. I and agree. That's... No. So, so like I said, I'll, I'll allow it for this one. It was your pick. And, uh, we're, we're getting, we're getting some Christmas in here and we're going to talk about Everything that occurs in her on Her Majesty's Secret Service, um, since I hadn't seen it before, and uh, you're pretty well versed in the Bond universe, so you know a lot more about it than I do. So we'll hopefully get a get a lot out of that, and then we'll also cover how Christmassy we really think on Her Majesty's Secret Service is. Um, but let's take a break really early on in the show because I know that we're probably going to get sidetracked with a lot of things for on her majesty's secret service uh we'll take a break we'll talk about the beer that we have on the show because this one is going to be sort of a bigger discussion about the beer that we have on the show because we do have an exciting um uh, beer two beers actually to talk about normally we don't have two different beers on the show we have one beer we drink a couple of them uh in this case we have two beers and they're two different beers but they're two of the same kind of beers we'll leave it at that we'll talk about it um this one is from Fidens, uh, which we've had on the show a couple times before we've had a couple beers on here we've talked about them they're a smaller brewery um in our area in the up uh, albany area um they have um be- become a very big brewer f- for our area and they they have have like national um re- recognition renowned. now world renowned for yeah their- they're delightful IPAs coming yep. out of our little area. They uh they 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 specialize in IPAs, and so um a lot of breweries have been 
itching to work with them, you know, big breweries who who also do their own IPAs and they've been wanting to do collaborations and they've, they've got quite a number of collaborations under their belt. And they also work with like hop companies too. And the, the beer that we have on the show today is a collaboration between Fidens and Freestyle Hops, which is a New Zealand hoppery or whatever they call, <laughs> whatever they call uh, places where you grow hops. I don't know if it's called a hoppery or a... Um, I, I, I don't know a, a grow a grow project I don't know what they call it but it's a collaboration between the two so Fidens with you know got hops from freestyle hops in New Zealand so these are all New Zealand based hops and they brewed two different beers with the same hops and they have called them uh do you freestyle and there's the west coast version and the east coast version now Fidens is pretty much known for their New England style, East Coast style IPAs. They have branched out to make some West Coast versions. And in our experience, their West Coast versions are pretty much the same as their East Coast variations, except maybe just a little bit less hazy. Um, they, you know, they, they, they are pretty similar to an East Coast version. So we were interested in the differences between the two. And the other thing is, there's a lot of FOMO going on with the with these types of beer releases because you know that they're very limited, um, and I I just really couldn't miss it because it, it looked so interesting to me. Um, so we had our our beer mule pick these up, very kindly, and uh, we've got them on the show. We got no, both hold on, of them hold on, today. Hold on. I, I will I will say, he didn't pick it up. Our beer mule Chad this time, uh, he did us a favor. I just said Ryan was going to have FOMO over this. I didn't even ask him to go, and I get a message from him later. Hey, I got you some. Don't worry about it. Yeah, so. that's pretty uh, That's pretty incredible. All because of you and he your came FOMO. Through. He didn't even know what FOMO was. I had explained oh, really? it to him. No, he had no idea. That, so. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, it's great. I, I really appreciate it, and uh, I'm glad that we have him on the show today to talk about. And we've got them both cracked open, just so you know. So we got the East Coast and the West Coast cracked open at the same time. And uh, I think, you know, here towards the end, we're actually going to combine the two um, to try um, a little combination of both of them together, see see what we think. So let's start out with the West Coast, because that was the first one that we cracked open. Uh, what do you, how do you feel about the, the West Coast style version of this? I like it a lot. Um... There hasn't been a Fiden's IPA that we've had or have done on the podcast that they haven't liked. I like it a lot. It's really good. Um, however, as good as it is, a couple of, as Ryan will say too, um, I don't really understand where they're getting the West Coast on here because there's nothing really West Coasty about any of the West Coast IPAs and pale ales that they've done. They're always still very juicy you know, very hazy, very tr- kind of tr- tropically. Um, I mean, I don't want to spoil it so far comparing it to the East Coast that we've already taken a couple of, you know, kicks from. But it's really good. I like it. But I'm. it tastes like a really good East Coast IPA. You get the nice juiciness. Is Ryan... It said when we were trying them, it's it is a little dry, pairs well, slight rosiny bitterness to it, very crisp, easy drinking. Um, 
you know, I would say like the like fruity notes of it's kind of like grapefruity, little slight rosiny, not overly rosiny. It's very good. I like it a lot. Like it a lot. Um, I just don't see though how you could slap West Coast on it because when you think traditional West Coast IPAs, you think piney, rosiny, big bold like you know malts pairing with it, you know, to give like a breadiness to it. Yeah. Um, that's not here. And also so, I mean, important so, to point out too that it like when you pour it out, the colors are extremely similar on both of the beers. Um, where with a West Coast, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be as cloudy as this one is pouring. This one is like pouring very hazy. <laughs> um, when you consider that it's a West Coast style, so I pretty much agree with everything that Martin said. I think that the West Coast is a very um very good, very drinkable and it's important to note that this the New Zealand hops in this are Rewaka um New Zealand Cascade and Southern Cross. And I'm not super familiar with many of like both of those Rewaka and Southern Cross. I don't I haven't really had too many beers with those. Um so this one does have a very distinctive hop flavor to it. Um very uh somewhat dank, somewhat rosiny, although um I do think that the the West Coast comes off a bit drier than um, your normal, um, like w- what we get from the East Coast style. We'll talk about the East Coast style too. Um, so this one is, you know, on the drier side, um, still very hoppy, very hazy, um, has a bitterness to it. Um, and I would say that this one has less of a juicy flavor to it than the uh, the East Coast style. So with that said, I guess we need to talk about the east coast version of this as well which as i was saying pours out like basically the same color and everything as uh the west coast style um and you know basically for all intents and purposes looks the same has the same hops in it rewaka new zealand cascade and southern cross um and the only thing that really differentiates it is that what they're what they're calling it east coast style so what did you think about the east coast style one um the east coast one hold on let's give it another taste another taste to compare it tastes like an east coast but i would say it's almost more west coasty because even though it has like all the same similar notes of the first beer the west coast style and being you know cloudy juicy grapefruit you know grapefruitiness uh like being like kind of like the forward fruit um it's more rosiny, which is something you would see in like, you know, more like a traditional like double, which these are both doubles, by the way, you know, double West Coast IPA. And you would also get that, you know, kind of flavor, you know, from a West Coast. So it's kind of surprising that the East Coast is uh, got more of a West Coast flavor to it. It is juicier, though. So that is, you know, not by much, but it is slightly more juicier, a little bit more rindier too. Like, you know, has more of like a, you know, blood orange, grapefruit rindiness to it. It is still a very good, not a great IPA. But the going the mile to brew the two, I, I have a hard time seeing it because, I mean, and, and I, I feel like I'm, you know, bad-mouthing it. But, I mean, they are gr- both great efforts. But they're so indistinguishable. Like, there's nothing, like, that really makes them stand out. 
like different to make them you know different it just kind of seemed hard to like well why the hell did you bother is this like a be- are these beers brewed for the snobs who think they could sit and like swirl the shit around and discern it you know like with you know everything like they're a cicerone i can't i don't claim to be i just drink them and like them mm-hmm. they are great efforts and i do like both of them but I think the effort could have been better off spent into investing into making like an actual West Coast IPA, finally. Or, you know, just making a standard bearer Nipa with, you know, different fruity taste to it. Because right now it's just like they're good. They're both very good. But I mean, I have a hard time, you know, saying which one's better or which one's got, you know, more different characteristics to it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that as well. I agree with the 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 East Coast style definitely for me comes off juicier. It's it's brighter than the um the West Coast style. And I think that's one of the reasons why I slightly prefer it over the West Coast style. Um but I I again, I do question the differences between them because for for most of like besides if you're like an actual brewer like um appreciating the process of the brewing itself and like the the actual recipe that they've used i don't know that they're distinguishable enough to really make a difference for for the the drinker and like probably if you were to have like one and then another it would be like outside of you know on one day and then another day it would be difficult to determine what exactly was different about them? Because your, you know, your memory of it would have faded to the point where you're just like, I don't know, it tastes like yesterday's, <laughs> tastes like tastes the same as yesterday's. So, I do question that. I kind of would be interested in seeing like them brew one where they'd use different hops in it, and and hops that were really, um, meant more for the style. So like, Rawaka hops are really meant for hazies. That's what they're used for. Um, so to use them in a West coast doesn't really make much sense because it's just not what a West coast style would generally use for hop. So I am kind of curious what would happen if they went with like specifically, they were like trying to really do it up and say like, Hey, here's a very distinctive hazy and here's a very distinctive West coast. Here you go. Um, yeah, like a nice, like Simcoe or Cascade, something that's, you know, big piney and bright, you know, nice and rosiny. You know, like I said, they're, they're both great, you know, Nipas. I, I can't say that enough, but I, I just think, like, I don't know, just spend your time focusing on one instead of the other, you know, trying to split the difference because mm-hmm. there's no difference really in between the two, you know, that make them make them worthwhile to checking out individually. It's more just like, uh, yeah, you got to. Gotta try it because it's a West Coast style. Now, <clears throat> did you now have you gotten a glass so that you can pour them both together? Not yet. Okay, we're gonna do, uh, that. do, we're gonna do that at the end. Oh, we'll do it at the end. Okay, yeah. we'll talk about it at the end. All right. Well, then that brings us to the end of t- talking about Fidens. Uh, do you freestyle beers? Um, until we get. While to the we're end gonna end. say, well, say when we're rating right Honor Majesty's Secret Service and how Christmassy it is, we're gonna. That's when we'll thread that needle. Okay. Um, all right, so so back so onto Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, you have extensive notes on the topic. Again, you know, like with Home Alone, you you basically made your thesis statement. Well, um, you said take notes. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, 
I mean, you don't want to go off the cuff anymore. You want you want scripts. Well, it's so. good. It's good to have notes to go off of, especially ones that you can uh, you can you refer back to. But uh, why don't we let's give us let's give a rundown of you know what what is what what is on Her Majesty's Secret Service about as a it's as a bond far film. up, far out, and far more. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, um, I bet you know. Th- Four years later, when Live and Let Die comes out, they wish they saved that tagline for when Roger Moore debuted. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is this is what the sixth movie in the series at this point in yeah, 1961. Yeah, yeah, that is correct. It's, yep. Well, 69. This one is. Oh, 69. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, this is the first and only appearance of George Lazenby, right? That's that is correct as well. Um. And at that time, he was about 29 years old. I think he's still the youngest Bond. Uh, By a but, mile and a half. Yeah, that is. That is. Well, how, Which, old was, um, how old was Sean Connery when he took up Connor, the mantle? Connery was actually pretty young. Yeah. But Connery also just aged poorly. Like, he just, right. like, you know, went from. So he was like 31, 32 when uh, Dr. No came out. He was born in 1930. Yeah, 32. So he was still pretty young. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, by you only live twice, in, which the previous film in 67, you know, he's not 40, but he's starting to look pretty fucking old. And by the time Diamonds Are Forever comes out after this in 71, he's got a hairpiece and all. He looks fucking rough. Yeah. As shit. So Lazenby... <clears throat> Which, um, Dalton, Timothy Dalton, who would later be Bond after Roger Moore, and he only got two films in, uh, The Living Daylights and, uh, License to Kill, and he was great, too, as, like, a serious, grounded Bond. Um, he was originally somebody that they were thinking of casting, because a lot of, like, Bonds that, like, actually get casted, like, they become Bond, like, 15 years later on. Like, Pierce Brosnan was originally supposed to be casted in, like, the 80s, but because he, he was tied up with Remington Steele, couldn't get casted, and he got casted later on. Timothy Dalton was, like, on track to be Bond back during this time period, too, but he turned down the role because he was he thought he was too young for it. He, he thought Bond should be a, an older person, like, in the books. Mm-hmm. Great for Timothy Dalton to think that, but what a fucking missed opportunity that would have been. A young Timothy Dalton in this role because of the, at least in my opinion, of like what a great job he does in The Living Daylights and License to Kill. Like, I think that could have been a great chance. But instead, we get this hulking, beautiful, slightly boorish, <laughs> um, inexperienced model from Australia, George Lazenby, as our Bond. But I'll tell you what. And this is a film that I only saw before college, probably like once or twice, because they never aired it on TV for whatever reason. Like maybe they like showed it once or twice on not dur- never during the Bondathons. It was always like maybe once or twice on like a random showing of TCM or U- USA. Never liked it because well, it's George Lazenby. He only is only in one film. Can't be good. It's not that good. It's not until I got to college where I really started to appreciate this film and really enjoy it because it is a great film with great action and a lot of great fucking ideas in it. And I'm not the only one that's come around over the years to this being a great Bond film. A lot of people have. And an underappreciated gem. Because I think after Connery's exit, 
with You Only Live Twice, which by that point, the franchise is kind of going batshit stupid with its comedy and campiness and all that, Falderall. Once he's gone, you we're finally, like, we're going back to basics. And I think that's appreciated, especially in 1969, where, you know, the, the film landscape is all over the place. You got more serious films coming out, like The Wild Bunch and Easy Rider. So, like, to like kind of have it kind of come back to Earth and not be, like, you know, this over-the-top stupid spy thriller and be more grounded in, like, how Dr. No was is great. And it's a sad thing because I think when after you watch this film, you kind of sit and think, like, well, you just start, like me, daydream of where the franchise could have gone after this if Lazenby stuck around because... Uh, the 70s is a dark time for the Bond franchise. I don't care. If, if you're a Moore fan, I'm, you grew up with them, so I'm sorry. Moore films are bad. Well, are you uh, <laughs> are you a bigger fan of the Bonds that go more serious than, uh, like, goofy? Like, yes. Because, uh, you know, yeah. uh, we... It's the, sa- it's the same way I treat my Lupin the third. Mm-hmm. I like my Lupin more gritty, realistic, and grounded into, you know... Grounded in reality, like it's got its campiness and it's yep. funny, you know, funny bits and stuff, but it's more, you know, hardened and based in reality than campiness because the films that Moore does that are like that, I mean, Spy, Spy Who Loved Me is kind of like a catch all. It's got like everything in it, but like it is kind of a little bit more grounded than the rest of his work is great. And For Your Eyes Only, which is a film that a lot of people don't really care for that watch, I like a lot because it's incredibly simple, basic. It's just a basic spy thriller. So, I do like that, because it's the same way, like, you know, a lot of people love Goldfinger. I think Goldfinger is okay. I think From Russia With Love, which is my, you know, 1A and 1B with this film when it comes to Bond films, which we've done when uh, Sean Connery, unfortunately, passed away. You know, I love that film because it's a great spy thriller and, you know, shows what, you know, this franchise could be if taken, you know, in a serious direction. Yeah, I mean... And and that's not to say like on Her Majesty's Secret Service still is a bit campy, you know. It still has the the spy, you know, campiness and occasional um, forays into like goofy comedic territory. But it it does keep things uh, a lot more grounded in reality and um, more grounded in focusing on the plot and and furthering that and sort of in the spy. Uh, wheelhouse instead of like you know going straight up cheesy um i think like you know in this movie right off the bat like you you can tell that we're you know we're still getting like sort of the um the exploitative elements that sometimes creep up into this into the spy movies especially with bond especially um you know based on the novels um there it's pretty apparent at times that um you know (laughs) there was some misogyny going on in ian fleming's work um, and that's pretty well known, um, you know, based on his books, that women were, you know, did not have, you know, the best treatment in his in novels. And, and, and a lot of times they were eye candy and um, just manipulation for the for the protagonist. And here we get that a little bit, but it does remain a lot more grounded as as um, Bond takes on a number of different uh, espionage tactics, including uh, pretending to be a master of genealogy for the the regency as well as uh um no no not genealogy heraldry 
Yeah, yeah, hero Eng- The English art of are you poor or not? Hear ye. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> They're all like, I hope, I hope I am. I hope, I hope I'm, I hope this tree works out. It's, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, so the, I guess to, to sum up the main plot, you know, um, Bond is out and he's, they, this is, um, this is post, um, some of his work previously with Blofeld. Um, the last film is, uh, with You Only Live Twice, it's where you get everyone's iconic, uh, image of Donald Pleasance as Blofeld, you yes. know, the Dr. Evil looking fuck, um, though he's only in the film for like 10 minutes, but like up until that point from Russia with Love, Goldfinger and Thunderball have all have little snippets of Blofeld in them because it's working up to, you know, this idea of like, who's the head of Spectre as he's sending, you know, this head sending out these agents to combat, uh, her Majesty's Secret Service. So, and what was we fi- the? We finally get the run in in the last film with Blofeld. So, and what what was the reason uh, Donna Pleasance did not reprise for on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Probably because they just didn't think about it. Mm. I'm not. I'm not so sure. But I mean, I mean, well, originally Donna Pleasance wasn't even. Um, casted for that role mm-hmm. it was uh hold on i gotta pull it up because it's a it was a czech actor that they had for like a little bit i mean it's kind of interesting that uh yeah know. uh they had Jer- uh jan warrick as blofeld and you only live twice and they shot for like seven days and said He's not going to work. He looks too much like Grandpa, uh, Santa Claus. <laughs> so you, you didn't want to like draw attention to the fact that like Santa Claus. He, might he looked also like a, be the... like a nice yeah. I say like they, he looked like a nice kindly old man. Yeah. So I mean, so I mean, but again, it's the same thing too. I mean, I I think it's more just out of convenience because the same thing. Like one one of the reasons why, and there's a lot of reasons why the follow-up to this is so fucking bad, Diamonds Are Forever, is that they casted Charles Gray, great actor, you know, you know, you probably know him from Rocky Horror Picture Show saying, it's just a jump to the left. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, you know, a ninja, and you only live twice. But they brought him back in that film as Blofeld, and as hilarious and campy as an actor he is, it's not really what you want to the follow-up to this film. So, like, you know, like him being Campy Blofeld running around in a fucking jumpsuit is just, like, you know, infuriating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it, the, it makes sense within the confines of the Bond franchise because it's always um, expanding. It's always, you know, changing. Con- continuity is not really a thing. It's yeah. just... Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's... It, it, I guess it makes sense to have Telly Savalas here instead, but um, I just wondered, you know, why Donald Pleasance was not interested in coming back. But maybe it maybe it had nothing to do with him being interested or not. Maybe it was, you know, Donald Pleasance was super busy at that time too. Uh, so, well, I think also too with the plot point that uh, you know the blow uh, the blow shot uh, the blue chomp blow shot uh, the uh, family that they have, you know, no earlobes. I think that would have. <laughs> you know, kind of made Donald Pleasance not be able to come back. Yep, yep. 
So, so basically, the the main idea here, like I was trying to say before, is you know Bond is he's in the. Uh, um, oh, and from oh, sorry, from what but, I looked up, they want somebody who's actually physically threatening. Looked mm-hmm. like an equal to George Lazenby, which uh, Telly, I love you. You're not as imposing as George Lazenby. Yeah. <laughs> so, but so I guess like to boil down the plot, basically we have. Uh, Bond, who is on the outs within this operation to take down Blofeld, you know, basically Operation Bedlam. Yes, they're you know his his uh, his um, uh, what do you call him? His handler, boss M. yeah, his boss M. M. is uh, not interested in having him participate anymore. And so, basically, a really funny part in the movie is when Bond is basically, you know, what uh, I'll get back at him. I'll just submit my resignation, and uh, he submits it. And then he walks in on M, and, and M just says, uh, "Permission granted." Yeah, permission granted. And he's like, you could see Bond's face just kind of fall, like, "Oh shit, <laughs> called my bluff there." And then we find out, oh wait, the resignation wasn't actually submitted; it was for Miss, time off. Miss Money Penny put in for a fortnight off. And Absolutely. Then, and, and then, then you get afterwards the nice after he you know sulks off to continue the mission secretly. You hear M go, "What would I do without you, Miss Money Penny?" Don't you love that the the sexual tension and also you know sexual um, harassment. harassment that's taking place in this <laughs> this uh, professional office? <laughs> it was for His Majesty. It's for Her Majesty's government, so it's all done in you know for Her Majesty. That's right. You know because because Bond just walks in and right away Money Penny's like at, against a cabinet. And he's like <laughs> right to the ass. Nice slap on the ass. Nice peck on the cheek. And then, you know, there's all this flirtation between them. He's like, I'm, I'm taking you out for dinner, Money Penny. And you know damn well that Bond doesn't really care that much about Money Penny. He's, he's chasing skirts with uh, younger women. Not, not, I'm sorry. Down on the beaches of Portugal. So, sorry, Lois Maxwell, which, but he's, he's, he's interested in the younger crowd. Which, speaking of, you know, chasing skirts out of Portugal, what a great opening that is, too. After, you know, we see, excuse me, nice IPA burp. <laughs> Got another one. Him down, you know, uh, well, down in Portugal, driving on the road. Yep. Gets this crazed woman driving in a red car, passing by him, and he's he's like, oh, I'm interested. What's going on here? And we don't get to see Lazenby at first. It's all shadow. It's all silhouette as he's pulling out his nice cigarette case and popping one in. It's all, you know, silhouette. We don't see him. I love that because that's like a like a perfect like like if you were to introduce like well everyone loves Connery, uh, how are we going to introduce this new fellow that we're going to try to sell as James Bond? What like that was great like that like you know nice tension that they build up until you finally see as Diana Riggs running into the ocean to commit suicide that you know and you finally see him hop out of the car and chase after him you see this big hulking beautiful beefcake come chasing after you. Yeah. To hear that sultry voice. It's like, Oh man, this guy is bond. How do you, how do you feel about, uh, George Lazenby as a, you know, as a, as an attractive bond in this movie, because basically the movie, um, especially later on when he goes to Blofeld's like, um, super lab where he's, uh, in the Swiss Alps where he's, uh, uh, studying, allergens um he goes there and there's like you know 15 
uh, young women that are staying there, and they all go pretty much insane as George Lazenby walks in, as uh, not as James Bond, but as his uh, alter ego, um, Sir Sir Hillary, uh, Sir Hillary, <laughs> and uh, the, you know how do you, how do you feel about that? Do you do you um, do you agree with the film that he's just like irresistible as he walks in, so suave, so, so yeah? I gallant. think George George Lazenby is a handsome fella. He looks great. He is a big, for the 60s especially, beefy guy, you know, built to the nine. Yeah, he he's more imposing than Connery. Like, one of the great things about, you know, George Lazenby in this film is, yes, because he's inexperienced as an actor, is he wooden in a lot of places, yes. But when it comes to, like, the fight scenes... He is fucking imposing, and he beats the shit out of people in this film. Yeah. And, like, you know, he looks just like like a hulking, brooding mass, even though he's not really hulking. Like, he's not, like, small, but he's also, like, you know, he, like, you look at him, you're like, eh, it's a formidable guy. The only thing I'd say is a lot of the outfits they throw him in this are incredibly garish. <laughs> and you would say, like... Usually how, like, you know, when you go from one decade to the next, you can see the transition. Boy, can you ever in this film see the transition from the 60s and the 70s here with the garish browns and beiges and pea-colored, like, furniture everywhere. It's just like, oh, God, the fucking whole casino uh, hotel with these this decadent, like, Carthaginian purple going on. It's like, oh, my God, what hellscape have we entered into? Yeah, is, mean, it, is, it, is, is this Caligula or is this a Bond film? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, the, he he does a great job here. And um, I think that also, you know, you, you talked about how the fight scenes are choreographed and stuff. Peter, Peter Hunt, the director, he does a really good job with directing them. And I saw people describe the, the fight scenes as sort of like chaotic, but still followable at the same time. Like they're. You know, they have a, a nice action to them that like which in a Pe- flow. Which Peter Hunt, before he this is the only Bond film that he directed, he was the second unit director on a lot of those early films. So mm-hmm. like he has experience, you know, producing the you know, and shooting those action type sequences. So he does have a good eye for it. My only my my, my only disagreement with, with that would be was I think a lot of the editing in some of those parts, especially that like first fight scene, he, the quick cuts and everything just look really bad today like it ruins a lot of the flow of what's going on like i think you could have done better if you just like shot and showed the whole like kind of scene go out because a lot of these like visceral moments like bond punching somebody or jump kicking them or throwing them around and then you have this quick cut to them like really close up and then back and like it's fallible but it's it's it it's like especially like it, it hinders it you know i i still think a lot of the action in this film is really enjoyable but that's definitely something like with the editing choice on that of how they want to kind of portray some of that action i just don't think works incredibly well today mm-hmm. like it loses kind of that uh, visceralness because of how they have it kind of chopped together yeah what do you think about that fight scene when um bond is going into his hotel room and that's pretty early on, you know, after he's 
he's already met Diana Riggs character in, in the casino and uh, he walks in. He's, just, he's pretty much expecting her. He walks in and he's kind of looking around and then all of a sudden he just gets karate chopped in the back of the neck. That actually caught me by surprise. You know, when we just uh, assassin in the room. You know? Not only assassin, a black assassin, suddenly, know. and you know every white man's sphere. But no, that like again, like that was great too. Like it's a very visceral. He's smashing chairs. They're strangling each other. They're punching. It's very yeah. visceral and very well like choreographed and looks great. Sounds great. Again, that has like the same problem though, where it has these little quick cuts where everything's kind of like chop a little choppy mm-hmm. and everything's kind of shot a little close together after, like, these big moments of, like, after you see Bond, like, punch up, like, it quick cuts to, like, these, like, this close-up of, like, Bond's nipple, and it's like, all right, like, like, what's going (laughs) on here? Like, you know, like, but it's, it's still really good. Like I said, I don't want it to seem like it's not good, because I do think, like, the action in this, especially the fights, are really good and well done, well choreographed. I think the editing, like, by today's standards, though, it's... It doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so basically, after that whole scene where he's, you know, he's already met Diana Riggs' character, and um, you know, they've kind of been flirtatious, and they have a one night stand. Um, he goes to see Draco, and um, he doesn't go see him. He gets, he gets yeah, he gets. Captured. He basically he's he's escorted Bond, to go see Bond. Him. Bond was about to go on a golfing trip before a man with a gun and a knife pull up and. Yep. Take him on a, <laughs> which I, I love just seeing him swing those clubs over his back. Like, well, I just had pussy last night. Time to go play the back nine. Like, <laughs> just... I mean, but I like, I love when he goes to see Draco and Draco's basically like, you have to marry my daughter. You have to. She's, she needs a man. And, and as you said, and you, you got me prepared for that. You know, there's a bit of smacking around for, for uh poor old Teresa or Teresa or Tracy. Um, and, it's uh, not. It's, it's not just that she needs a man. She needs a man to yeah, make she, love to her, she, to dominate her. She needs. She needs domination. And and I like too how Bond kind of brings that up too. He's like, you know everything that we did, and he's like, don't worry about that. Don't <laughs> don't you worry. Well, the he, the guy that he beat up was like creeping around, like the black guy that he beat up. That's yeah, one of Draco's associates. He was like listening at the door. He's like, oh yeah, she's. Don't worry, you went down hundred beaver, so you're taking care of her too. So don't. Don't worry, you're you're a gentle lover. Uh, you know. I forgot to mention too. What do you think about having a bed out on the balcony? You know, that was sixties. Overlo- just, you know, yeah, just the sixties. You got yeah, I was just like, what if it rains? So what if it rains? You know what? Your bed clothes are wet. That's what happens. You you get a nice mildew listen, mildewy mattress. Listen, Draco's more worried about somebody taking care of his daughter's fields. Okay, so they'll replace the bed. No problem, no. But yeah, so but that, I say that is great though, because I do, I I do love like how he gets kind of cordoned off, and he's going down there, and then he they get into another great little fight, and as Bond breaks through, like you know, he gets in, you got that great shot of Bond, yeah, as he's like you know seeing Draco for the first time, he's got like the throwing knife in his hand, and Draco's like, oh, come sit down, Mister Bond, I've been expecting you, you know. Yeah, he's got it. At, he's got the knife at the ready. It's great. Though his suit is also garish. That fucking turtleneck and beige thing, whatever Lazenby's wearing, it's like, oh, God, that looks bad. Again, it was the 60s. 
No, it's the late sixties because if you the early sixties, you didn't look like that. Was, <laughs> you can, like I said, you can tell like we're heading to the seventies and it's gonna go totally awry. But but that basically puts everything in motion because Draco, you know, is basically helping. He has, he has info on Blofeld. Yep. Yep, he's got and info. if Bond if Bond wants to know about where Blofeld is, because he's been ta- again taken off of the Operation Bedlam to find Blofeld because he hasn't made any, any progress. If uh, Bond starts to you know date and potentially try to marry his daughter, he'll give him the information on Blof you know where to find Blofeld. So, and not only that, but if he wants a million dollar dowry, million pound, million pound, he'll he'll court Tracy as well. Uh, he wants that money. So that really sets it in motion. He, so he's got Draco kind of in his pocket to help him out. And, um, I don't, it, I, no, I, I don't think it's really Draco in his pocket. It's more Bond's in his pocket. That is because, true. Yeah. Because, you know, Bond has, you know, a really raging heart on. I mean, obviously after the first, you know, five films, he's been basically chasing Blofeld since Dr. No, uh, you know, to and to be taken off the operation, you can see that you know he's re- you know he really wants to be able to you know close that case. So yeah, and so there's a there's a great moment where he has to break into uh, this guy's uh, office, and he's kind of got one of Draco's henchmen at his his uh, lookout. Breaks in. He's got uh, a few a uh, few minutes, or I think it's like a half an hour, right? Basically, it's like his lunch break. He's got his lunch break to go in and crack open the case. Oh, an hour that Gamal's, uh Yeah, yeah. Swiss. The the the, uh, the what do they call him? Solicitor. The solicitor. Well, he's yeah, attorney. So yeah, solicitor. They call him solicitor, and he breaks in, and he's got you know he's basically got this uh, uh, cool little uh, cr- uh, safe cracker that he uses. And he's sit- just sitting around because there's nothing for him to do. He's just, you know, letting the machine do the work. Pulls out a Playboy, re- admires a Playboy. I, I didn't realize until watching it for, like, this time that the fucking construction site nearby had Draco written all over Oh, yeah, yep. I, I noticed <laughs> I, that right away. I, 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 didn't, I never noticed that until now. Like, like oh, like, because, you know, the guy that's helping him is uh, one of Draco's associates. And, but it is great, like, because it's, like, real genuine spy work. Like, you know, yep. like, oh, to find this information, you need to do this, and like you know, he sneaks in, and he's got this big, stupid, fucking safe cracker that's also a Xerox machine, which is funny because in the beginning of the film, Q's like, "The future's miniature. You can't can't do all this shit big. You gotta shrink it down." And here's this like, which I I imagine by 1969, they're like, "Yeah, see what we did there? That's tiny." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so which I, I but I do like that that whole spying bit in in Zurich, you know, is really good and really well done and really tense, but like you know it's not gonna really be tense because it's not really gonna be that close of a call, but it is like a fun simple bit that kind of, you know, builds onto this. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think that the film has a lot of great set pieces too. Like that's that's a fun set piece. But then when we, once we get to the Swiss Alps, where um, we know that Blofeld has like his little um, his science experiment lab up there, um, is that allergy lab. We get a lot of great things. Like we get a, the Alps themselves look great. You know, we we get a lot of good cinematography of just 
people enjoying the Alps, people skiing in, you know, the slopes and, and lots of, uh, you know, environmental uh, views because we're, you know, we take a helicopter ride. And um, once we get up to there, there's a lot of great moments when, you know, he's actually in the lab and um, posing as Sir, uh, Sir Hillary, Hillary, well, Sir Hillary. <laughs> Um, I think like that part of it with the espionage, even though the believability is somewhat out the window once Bond gets up there and he thinks like you, you have to kind of like factor in a, a couple different things here. You know, Bond, first of all, had to learn genealogy in like what? I don't even know. It doesn't the, the film doesn't really give us like a time frame so much, but very quickly he had to learn genealogy and then pose as though he's part of the. Uh, Regency for, you know, basic... London College of Arts. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's fine because, like, later on in the more films, anytime, like, something scientific was happening randomly around him, but, like, when we get to see Bond, like, show up when M's doing his fucking butterfly hobby and they had to break out, like, the site like the latin term for what it is and stuff, the more films are literally litter- littered with this. Like, he would just, like... And would be like, do you know about this? And then, like, at, like Bond would go into, like, a fucking robot mode and, like, spit out this big scientific term. So, like, it's kind of nice to see, like, that he actually, like, kind of, he's like, I ha- I know I have to kind of study on this to make sure that, you know, my cover is foolproof. Right. However, that being said, here's one of the big plot holes in this film. They already fucking met, and you only live twice. Blofeld knows what Bond looks like. He's already ran into him. Blofeld, you can kind of understand if Bond doesn't like know exactly what Blofeld looks like in this, because Blofeld probably had some plastic surgery along the way to get to look like more like he's got a claim to the Countship. But Bond... It's already known to Blofeld. So Blofeld, whether or not Bond's information's right, Blofeld knows what Bond looks like. Blofeld knows what Bond sounds like. So him throwing his voice to be like, Sir Hillary Bray for 30 minutes is totally unnecessary. (laughs) Like you could literally just have George Lazenby do that part. Right. Because there's no, because all the only difference between Bond and Sir Hillary Bray is he's wearing a fucking Sherlock Holmes hat, has <laughs> Sir Hillary Bray's voice, and has a, a fucking pipe that he's like, pu- you know, knocking the tobacco know. out of. It's great because so, like, then he gets, so, yeah, he, he, when he's like heading there and he's like, hmm, got this pipe. Uh, this will be good cover. <laughs> Basically, you can like, see that going so, through like, his head. Like, like, so, like, it's a nice idea, but especially by today's standards, it's so fucking stupid. Yeah. Like, and I don't know if maybe they overdubbed Bo- Lazenby during, the, like I said, I don't know. It's a speculation. Maybe they did it because, again, like, well, we know he's not that good of an actor yet. So let's just dub his lines over so mm-hmm. it's more, you know. So I I don't, or maybe maybe they did think they were being smart. I don't know. Maybe they, they I very well could very well be like, no, we dubbed him over because we thought audience would fucking know. These dumbasses just saw, you know, one of those Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. They can't fucking tell the difference. <laughs> you know, so I don't know what what it is, but it like it's it's a bad decision. They should just let Lazenby play the part. Right. Sneak right. in sneak yeah. in as Sir Hillary Bray. But he also probably should have went in too. 
excuse me, knowing that, like, again, like, there's no secret, like, height, like, you know, there's no gimmick that he could have put on that Blofeld wouldn't have known that was him. Blofeld knows who Bond is. Blofeld's been fighting against Bond for six films. Blofeld met Bond last film. So, like, it's... It's just unnecessary. And I think if the like if the franchise, up until, like, the recent films, like, decide to kind of stick to some kind of level of continuity, you wouldn't have these kind of fucking problems. But, you know, they don't... You know, the continuity's always fast and loose, so... Right. You get that. Yeah, I mean, I think that it it does add like a like a fun, you know, sort of espionage to it. I don't think it's really uh um believable, but like it 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 it's kind of fun as he goes through and you know, you have those meetings of Blofeld where he's, you know, they're basically going back and forth. And he's like, eh, "I don't really know. You're not you're not the count yet." I love I love though like I have the proper paperwork here. And he's like, mm, "Yes, but are you sure that's proper? He's like, this is the proper paperwork. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. He's only if I talk to you, then I'll truly know if you're the count. Well, here's my paperwork. And, and not only that, <laughs> but they have to go to this one particular area where he's Ogdensburg, like, yeah. no, the Count de Blechamp. Yep. Here's we have to. We absolutely have to go here to uh, make sure that we research you a bit better. Um, no, I, I I think that's like it's a really like fun element to it. Um, it definitely adds some running time to the film because the film is like two hours and 20 minutes long. So it definitely adds a bit of running time and like all of the lead up to getting to the Swiss Alps and things like that um, takes a bit of time. But later on, like about 50, probably 50 minutes. Yeah, so probably probably about, to... you know, like an hour in uh, an hour <coughs> uh, in or an hour left to the movie. Excuse me. You get um, some great set pieces, especially like uh, a lot of action scenes where um you have Blofeld and Bond kind of chasing after each other. That's after Blofeld reveals, like, um, you're not really fooling me. I know you wouldn't. I know a, a professional from the Regency wouldn't just come here and seduce women on their, you know, off how, time. How, how, how did you feel about the whole all the girls are like, I thought you were gay. It's hilarious. Like, because he's like, when they're like, oh, they're like, ah, Irma Bunn's like, meet all the girls. And he's like, Oh, I don't really like young girls. Yeah, and, and then like he's going around seducing all of them, and <laughs> I love every time. Though. Every every time he <laughs> runs into them, they're like, "I didn't think you liked girls, Haley." <laughs> I love the the one woman who writes her room number on his thigh. Uh, yeah, and then later on, she's like, uh, "Irma Bunt's like, is anything wrong?" And he's like, "Just a case of <laughs> stiffness. Just a case of stiffness of the shoulder." Uh. Hilarious. I do like too, like, it's like a Bond is madly in love with Tracy at this point. You know, they're supposed to be be a great couple. We get a nice montage of them walking through flower beds and well, hold on, fountains hold on. and stuff. And then hold on. you have him here. Hold on. Hold on. Time out. First off, that is a beautiful scene. Especially when Bond chases after Tracy after she figures out that her father's trying to sell her off. Um, where, you know, he, like, goes to console her and you see that she's, like, actually heartbroken about it. Whether or not it's because, she, you know, Bond isn't trying to actually be with her or if it's because her father's just selling her off. Which I'm sure by that point she should be used to be by. You know, the fact that Bond goes to console her and, like, how that kind of plays out. 
between Bond and Diana Rigg is awesome. And then getting that Louis Armstrong, like, love bit is beautiful. Like, you know, granted, it's that film, like, two-week romance of, like, you know, they fall in mm-hmm. love. But you get that nice, we have all of the time in the world. With that nice John Barry score and, mm-hmm. like, you know, dancing on the beach going to the store and buying expensive things and then two weeks later they're in love so i mean as stupid as it is it is nice though but i mean to hold to your point of bond going around still fucking all these other bitches well Geralt in the witcher he loves jennifer so getting all that ass though (laughs) so i mean that's up for you to decide no, I, I, I think that he's definitely uh, pr- practicing some infidelity. That's what I would, or or uh, threatening infidelity. That was work. He was putting in work. Yeah, that's easy. Do you, to, easy. Do to you want to fuck that bitch that's from like wrote that eight on his leg? Like, I'm from Lancaster. I was used to be afraid of chickens, but now I can eat the chickens. He was doing God and country a favor, okay? <laughs> there was no pleasure there. And you know what? It was so pleasurable that that line he used to seduce her when she was like, I'll let me put the light on, Hilly. And he was like, no, no. You're a beautiful picture and you're better lit by the fire. Mm-hmm. He used that on some other broad five minutes later. So, you know, it... <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> it... it... <laughs> It is, though, because it's just so fucking stupid. Irma Bunt, though, is what makes, like, that whole part great. Like, you know, like, bring up and down and, like, she's fucking brilliant. I love her. (laughs) We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the various skiing and bobsledding. Winter. Christmas. (laughs) Christmassy. Christmassy activities that are going on in this movie. Well, this film was also brought to you by the Olympics, because everyone's wearing a fucking Olympic jacket. I know. How do you think the Olympics felt afterwards, like, oh, this film used our jackets with our logo on it. For for the villains. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The the villains are the only ones with Olympic jackets on. I know. Everyone that's evil in this film has an Olympic jacket. (laughs) Yep. Well, what do you think about those skiing scenes and uh, bobsledding scenes? Great. This film has some of the best action, not just in any Bond film, but of all time. Seriously. Especially for that last hour to 50 minutes. It's like nothing. It's like a pure sugar rush. Yeah, it pretty much has a nonstop action-y moments to it. Nonstop action. Granted, because it's the 60s, there is green screen work at hand. Oh, yeah. And get to see it in full front and center. But the actual shots that are shot on the second unit and are practical, they're fucking great. The whole ski chase sequence, the first one, is fucking great. Where they're ch- after, which, sorry. Jeez. I know, well, this is what happens with your IPAs. Taken two, well, I'm being like you. The whole sequence of Bond escaping P's Gloria is great. Let's start. Let's start with him trapped in the clock tower after Blofeld caught him and f- figured out, like, oh, the, if, you, if you were a real he- genealogist, you would know that the Count de Blechamp, fa- you know, family's in Saxony and on Ogdenburg, you know, or whatever the fuck bullshit. Again, like, <laughs> Blofeld should have known. Anywho, 
and he gets trapped in that clock tower, which I kind of think is what inspired the loop, the whole, well, not the clock tower, the ski, you know, the basket thing. What the hell is that called? The gondola? Yeah, the gondola. That whole sequence kind of reminds me a lot of like what like would later happen at the end of the Castle of Cagliostro, the mm-hmm. Lupin film. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that whole bit of once uh, Lazenby, you know, Bond's trapped in there, trying to figure out how the hell to get out of there, and his only idea is, I gotta get out. Like I have to escape, or they're gonna kill me. I have nothing at, but my wits. What do I? What am I gonna do? He rips the pockets out from his pants. To make gloves so he can start climbing on to the actual cable. And usually in a Bond film or any kind of film like this where, you know, you expect the hero to win, you would expect it to be easy. It's not. It's trying. And there's like three times where he almost dies trying to do it before he's finally able to overcome it. It's mm-hmm. fucking tense, and it's fucking great, and it's something you would never see in, like, a Connery film, or a Brosnan film, or a Craig film, or any, because Bond is infallible. Bond can't be, you know, be seen as mortal. Lazenby's Bond offers you that opportunity to see Bond at a vulnerable standpoint, because this whole escape from Peace Gloria is Bond at, like, his lowest and most vulnerable him working his way out to like almost falling to his death, getting crushed, and then finally being able to escape, and then being able to sneak back into Peace Glory to figure out what's like Blofeld's planning on doing with the Angels of Death, and then sneaking into the ski cabinet, skiing down for his life, brutally murdering two people by, you know. Slamming a ski in, one gets yeeted off the mountain, and you get to see hilarious. You get to see that for like a full like ten seconds of this man just plummeting, plummeting off this mountain. And you're like, oh, that can't get any more brutal than the other guy he fights to get the second ski after his one ski is shot, and you see him skiing down the mountain with one ski, which is fucking tense and great. You get to see him yeet another guy off the fucking mountain, make his way back into town with. Irma Bunt and the biathletes hot on his trail and he's running for his life scared you get to actually see fear when he's like checking back to see because he's he has no weapons he has no allies he's all alone trying to get back to safety and a fucking guy dressed in a bear costume scares the ever-loving shit out of him. It's like a perfect slasher moment, this whole mm-hmm. chase. And it's brilliant until you get to see that beautiful light that Tracy, just by the grace of God, happens to be there and help him along. That whole part is like 25 minutes long. It's tense, but it's exciting and great action with great pacing. It's a perfect action scene. Even to today, it holds up. It's beautiful, and I love it. Like, I can't... Because, again, that level of vulnerability, you would never be able to see in any other Bond. Maybe Brosnan, but not any other Bond. Because you would never see that. And Lazenby's able to deliver that. He's not just menacing. You actually get to see a Bond whose life is in threat. And you feel like, holy shit, his life is actually in danger at this very moment. Yeah, I I think uh, one of the the best sequences of the skiing parts too is when bond is skiing down there's like this uh snow plow going through 
uh, you know, it's kind of like plowing out like a, a run into the side of the mountain for whatever reason, because for the most part, we see like this mountain is like untouched snow that they're skiing down. They're doing like SSX tricky tricks off like houses that are just like on the on the slopes here and then there's this random snow plow that they go past and uh one of the guys that's uh blofeld's henchman gets sucked into it and spit out in the on the other side and that says, he is has guts <clears throat> literally the most that's literally the most brutal death in all, any bond film like you thought falling off a fucking mountain two times over is brutal mm-hmm. here you have that poor fucker get mangled by a snowblower yeah and the blood and shit shooting out from the chute, and everyone going by it like, oh, what the fuck's that? And the guy driving it like, oh, I wonder what I hit. Yeah. Did, I, did I hit another raccoon? And then fucking Bond be like, oh, yeah, he's got guts. It's like, it's Jesus. A, it's a grisly fountain of this man's blood just shooting out. It's and like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, I know. It's, it's like so... So gory that it's actually funny because it's it's just a ridiculous moment. But I enjoyed it. I thought that was I no. Was, I I I do think it's nice. Again, it's like really grisly and realistic. Yeah. But at yeah. the same time, it's like holy shit! Like you know, they went there. What? So what do you think though? Of like the whole piece. Like uh, you got kind of got a little sidetracked there. So what do you think of Bond's escape from Peace Gloria? Like that whole. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I I enjoyed the whole like last hour of the movie because like you said it does really not let up. Um I mean there's maybe that one scene where Tracy and Bond get together again and there's the, the like their their night together. Um but other than that it's really not um it doesn't let up from the action and there's always that pursuit at at hand, you know, Blowfield's right behind them. So uh it doesn't really give us much of a chance to um to, that car uh, chase is amazing. Yeah. It doesn't give us much of a chance to, like, uh, sit back or relax or anything like that. And I think that's that's a really good good, good part of the movie. Um, uh, let's say that car chase but when they Tracy and Bond re-meet mm-hmm. again, which we don't even see Tracy for 45, 50 minutes of this film. Yeah, she's gone for a long while. She's gone for a long while. So when she shows up, that car chase that they have, you know, with her and her cougar and fucking them and their little German... Soviet car is fucking great, and then when they hit the stock car race on that ice rink, it's fucking amazing. And it's just it's re- that's also really like Lupin esque, like you know, them trying to get away and Bond cracking all these one liners and giving Tracy a kiss and Irma Bond like go faster, go faster, run through the run, through, shoot, shoot, shoot. You know, it's I I love it, and then you get to see this the poor other guys driving these cars like you know the fuck's going on i know <laughs> yeah i'm no. just trying to win, win this race in my little mini cooper and this bitch in her fucking car is running all us off the road no i mean i i think it's a really cool cool sequence and we didn't even talk about like what leads them to really need to take down blofeld at this time you know blofeld basically has a uh this plan to unleash like biological warfare and uh, he his... great idea too. It's it's. I would say out of like all the Bond villains, this is one of the smartest ideas ever. Develop a virus that's gonna make all the cereal and livestock in the world infertile, so you would basically wipe out food in the world. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah, it's uh horrifyingly brilliant. It's one of the ones that could actually occur, like could happen. 
And he even brings up how, like, you know that nasty case of hand, foot, and mouth disease that hit London last year? I could tell you how it happened, because it was me. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> it, you know, it's great. It's, like, it's one of, like, the simplest ideas ever, but it's just, like, incredibly brilliant. It's like, yeah, that's, that would be scary. Like, have you ever thought about, like, you know, anything like that? And probably not, because you're like, oh, I'll never go starving. And then you're like, oh, wait. Yeah. That means, like, wheat, rye, all this shit's gone. What did you think? I say, what did you think of, and I didn't notice it actually until this time around, and I've seen this film like ten times. What did you think of the brilliantly stereotypical every person from every country, like, uh, having their allergy be a stereotypical food for them. So, like, the poor Japanese girl, her allergies rice, and you see her shoving down rice. The Jamaican girl, allergies bananas, and she's sitting there shoving bananas down, and, you know... Oh, yeah. No, it was very stereotypical, <laughs> and I definitely noticed that right away. I like how half the time Bond is, like, looking at theirs, and she's like, this one girl's just eating corn on the cob. Like, yeah. that's her meal, is corn on the cob. Um, the Indians eating paneer. It's like what? Like, like what? It's like I I don't know why. Maybe it's because my DVD copy that I've seen it on I wasn't watching on like high def screen, so I wasn't really paying that much attention to. But watching this like on a 4K TV, it's like holy shit, that's not good. I know. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, I definitely noticed that. Well, fun. Hilly was too busy getting an eight drawn on his leg to go, you know, dump his seed. Yeah. So. How'd you like, uh, Lazen, not Lazenby, Blofeld's uh, hypnotic, I'm going to pop cassettes in and tell you what to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, when does that not work? Just a nice little, little, uh. Hypnotherapy there. After some nice post-coitus, like, Not now, Hilly, it's time for, time for me to love chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, I, I enjoyed you, it. I mean, uh, Telly like, has a great voice, so. He does. What did you think of Bond curling? Amazing. <laughs> it's a good player. I don't think I've ever seen curling with bowling pins. Is that how it's supposed to be played? It's like shuffleboard, but also curling. <laughs> I don't know what it. I don't know what exactly it is, but yeah. He, I love that he falls ass over tea kettle when he's doing it because he's like, "I'm Hillary and I don't like sports." And... Right, yeah, and he really <laughs> makes that known, especially like when uh, Irma asks him on the the helicopter ride, like, "Do you so do you uh, do ski you uh, or... ski or you know anything like that?" And he's like, "I'm not much of a." activities person <laughs> i love too the fact when he comes over and she, she was like how was your trip and he's like i'm dreadful i dreadfully hate traveling so it was garbage <laughs> yeah basically like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, he's very like, uh, like like who said like does he have autism like who said like you know comes out like if you like had a bad trip and you're like how was your trip you usually don't go it's fucking bad you're like that's oh, good it, it was, was good. horrible <laughs> the worst trip i've ever taken <laughs> I don't know. All right. Um, what about the uh, the last scene where they they actually take take down uh, Blofeld? Basically, uh, Bond well, gets a well, hold. That whole that whole bobsledding sequence is fucking great too. Because after, well, hold on, you jumped too far ahead. I'm not trying to go in order. Oh well, I'm okay. Well, you jumped too far ahead. 
You should go in order because that's how I got everything organized. Um, Draco's assault on Peace Gloria. What did you think of that? I liked it. I thought it was very entertaining. Again, a very entertaining, very well shot action sequence that they, you know, it, it it's all well done from the director's standpoint. It, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I, it, it, it feels a lot even better sometimes than our uh, contemporary movies, action movies. Did you like Bond sliding on the ice shooting the guy as he gets off the helicopter? Absolutely, and I have seen set, that clip set, before. Set, I, I don't know if you've set, sent it to me before, but... Set, set to... Yeah. It's like you're playing like an EA, EA yeah. fucking Bond game from like the Xbox and Pretty GameCube. Much. Like doing like a Bond moment where like... Like when you're playing Nightfire. It's awesome. Would you think that the guy... The uh, one, the black guy who was uh, <clears throat> uh, Draco's assistant, uh, associate, sorry, other than burning the man alive with a flamethrower for no reason. <laughs> well, the film is pretty brutal. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I love that. Just because, like, the guy's running away, and all of a sudden you see him with a fucking flamethrower. Just like, <laughs> just... I know there's, like, there's n- definitely no, uh, no fucks given to. Just you know, like human life. Yeah, right? or like you know, like if they're they're uh, they're surrendering, it's like yeah. Oh well, this place has got to get blown up. We gotta we gotta get rid of him anyway. I do I do love the fact that when like after you know the whole avalanche bit and Blowfell is like oh he's got to be dead now and oh but the girl's still alive. Drag her over here. And Bond's back home at you know in London at MI6, stewing about what to do, trying to get M and them to okay an assault. And when that doesn't happen, he calls Draco up and he's like, "Yeah, I have a construction call for it, <laughs> demolition." And then you get to see him flying back to Peace Gloria, and you know Draco's like, "I'm from the Red Cross. There's a great flood in Italy. We need to." Save the people. There's plasma and blood. You know, and they're like, "Oh, okay." I mean, speaking of the avalanche, the avalanche is a cool scene. Um, you know, you get that like <laughs> that warning sign. Quiet. It's an avalanche not, zone. Not yeah. only that, you get the great part where they pull up. Blofeld pulls up with his henchmen. Right, you three go down there. You stay up here. I don't like Tom. Yeah, no, right, right. You guys go on down. I'm gonna shoot off this and this flared up post. Set the avalanche off, which you do get that nice, as you said, stock footage of the fucking avalanche. Yeah, it is kind of funny seeing Tracy be like James, and like the avalanche hasn't even hit her yet, and she's like, like, you know, crumpling forward, and it's it's, and then you get to see Blofeld's uh, associates getting wiped out by it. You know, it's. Yeah, it's a pretty cool scene, and I, I just wonder, like, how did James just get out easily? He's just like, eh, I've extracted myself, and I'm I'm going back home. Because he's built, he's built like a brick shit house. I know. And Tracy's just like, I don't know where she went, but oh well. We'll find her sometime. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I like I like the uh, that whole, you know, the whole bit towards the end, you know, where they're just storming in take Blofeld and uh it's pretty actiony you know you got Tracy there and they're like you've done enough you've done enough come with me you know they just they're like you know what you can't help with this anymore we already killed you already killed Gunther Mm -hmm. we're taking you out of here 
Um, not only that, not only that, she gets fucking punched and knocked out for her. She troubles. does. Yeah. That leads me to like the end of the movie, you know, with the wedding. Is great. How do you feel about Bond settling down with that wedding? What do you think about that? It's fine because in for your eyes only, not for your eyes only. Uh, and you only live twice uh, to try to fool uh, Blofeld and become a Japanese ninja. He marries a woman. So <laughs> <clears throat> the film before that already did that. So <laughs> no, it's it is great, and I think it is really great. And it works great because I think the chemistry between George Lazenby and Diana Rigg, even though they did not like each other at all, you can't really see that in the chemistry because I think they work really well together. And I think Bond being a young, youthful, you know, Lazenby being a young, youthful guy and seeing this, it, it works out terrifically. Connery, depending on how he was feeling for this film, <clears throat> he could have been great, even like at you know his older age. He could have been great in this, but if he was so jaded that he you know was on speaking terms with the you know the broccolis you know at, during he only lived twice, he could with a script like this he could have totally submarined it by being a piece of shit. So I think Lazenby does give that nice youthful bounce and energy and glow. And this relationship feels actually believable to where I, I honestly, outside of Daniel Craig and Ava Green and Casino Royale, you, you wouldn't be able to, you know, see that. And I still really love, you know, the wedding and watching, you know, Miss Money Penny cry. I'm not saying cuz I want to see her cry, but I mean, just like, you know, just just kind of watching you the wedding unfold. Sociopath. I say just watching the wedding unfold and watching, you know, Blofeld and Bunt, you know, attack and kill Tracy at the end. It, it still gets me to this day. It's it's still really tragic and I think the film knows enough to just let bygones be bygones and end on a note where just Bond's like, it's okay. As the passengers come by, we have all the time in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I think that it ends on a pretty good note. Like, I like that it wasn't something where it just, like, ends and everything's happily ever after. And there's, you know, it's it doesn't end on, like, a cheesy note. It's, like, literally the most 60s ending ever. Because it's quick and, like, da-da-da-da, and you roll credits. Yeah. But it, but it does fit the tone. Because, like, a modern-day film would have, like, a 30-minute epilogue of, like, Bond getting his revenge. <laughs> right, right. No, I, I like that. And um, my theory is that Bond had a hit out on Tracy. Put the hit out. <laughs> He wanted that one million dollar, dollar uh, pound. one million dollar, one million pound dowry, and he put the hit out to get out of that. But, but he gave it away when they had the wedding. When Draco gives, goes to give it to him, and it's true. But I mean, like, do they ever? Do they bring this up in the next movie? No. Like, hey, Bond. No. Where's your wife? <laughs> your no, wife? Died. No. No, that's why Diamonds Are Forever is a fucking terrible film. <laughs> and again, like Connery shows up and he's like giggling the whole time. And it's like, you're supposed to be playing the guy whose wife just got killed by Blofeld. And you're here shoving him into fucking plastic goo. And like, oh yeah, plastic surgery. And then Jimmy Dean shows up. And then 
Christoph Glover, Christopher Glover, his dad's in here as a gay assassin with him and Mr. Wint, Mr. Kid. Fucking stupid. That movie's stupid. I hate that fucking movie so much. Don't even get me started. I hate Diamonds Are Forever so fucking <laughs> much. But, no, because again, like, this, the franchise has no fucking continuity to it. They do bring it up later, um, and for your, for your eyes only. Which they did for petty reasons, because it was right after they settled the lawsuit with Kevin McClory, the co-writer of Thunderball. That's why we got the shitty Never Say Never Again, because he has he was a co-writer. He earned co-writer, co-producer uh, credits for that book and movie. So that's the only Bond part of Bond franchise that he owns. So that's why he made Never Say Never Again. And so when For Your Eyes Only came out, which was before then, and that's like after the dust settled on that lawsuit, the in the beginning of that, which the film hasn't been in 12 years from For Your Eyes, For Your Eyes Only and Honor Majesty's Secret Service, haven't had any mention of this film, you see Roger Moore at Tracy Bond's grave and then dump a man that they call Bald Man with Cat into a fucking pipe which is supposed to be Blofeld, the, at, the begin, at the entry of the movie, has literally no bearing on the rest of the film or anything. He just, like, gets into a fight where he finds Blofeld in this, like, Chernobyl-looking setting, takes a helicopter and hooks him up on his wheelchair as the bald man yells, Mr. Bond! Mr. Bond! And then he drops him down a pipe hole, and then, like, da-da! And that's your intro. The fucking continuity for this franchise is fucked. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> no, it's it. But like, it would be pretty cool if they bring it up, but they didn't. That's why. That's why I say it's far. it's it's really sad that Lazenby decided to get conned by the hippies and like, oh, this this franchise has no future. Go make Universal Soldier. It'll be so much better than this. And just turn this down because I think. I think if he stayed on, maybe this is, me, this is wishful thinking and booking. If Lazenby decided, like, okay, I'll sign on for like another two film or three film contract. Maybe when they do Diamonds Are Forever, it's not as serious as this. Mm-hmm. It's a little campier, but it's still grounded and it's going to follow something. Yeah. I think by the fact that he got became detached and they brought Connery back, this film became totally excised from the franchise where they're just like, Ignore, move on. And it's a shame because this film is great. It's got some of the best direction in any Bond film. It's got the best action in any Bond film. It has the best Bond girl. Mm. There's like there's so much here that's worthwhile and I think is one of the the one of the biggest like mistakes that the franchise could ever make because I think we could have been saved from so much crap after this. Yeah, that is true. So, um, f- before we give this movie a rating, let's talk about the Christmasiness of it. Christmas! Because we this is a Christmas movie. Or a Christmas episode, I'm sorry. Uh, and a Christmas movie. What, out of scale of 10, what do you, how, how Christmassy is this movie for you? 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10. <laughs> They have a Christmas tree. They unwrap presents. <laughs> they talk about having Bond over for Christmas dinner. There's a not a one-horse open sleigh, but a two-horse open sleigh. 
for no Chris. reason too by the way because a guy just the, the other guy just drives his car up the road because they Chris. they take a horse and and sleigh and he's just like uh, follow along in the car because it's christmas ryan <laughs> it's at that time it's not even christmas at all because the girls when bond gets there they say are you staying with us for christmas so it's still a little ways out for christmas well, says, i don't in, know we'll see it's, it's in season in season though he didn't stay up there for a fucking month are you kidding <laughs> so you're giving it a seven out of time i'm gonna give it a two out of ten i don't feel that a couple of trees in the background and a couple of pretty you know white lights in the background constitutes a christmasy movie um they do mention christmas at around like i think it's about an hour in it's the first time we hear christmas <laughs> and then later on you know obviously it does take place at, at during christmas and we see Christmas lights, Christmas decorations. Um, as you mentioned, the the two horse open sleigh, but it is not very Christmassy. I think you're wrong, and that's okay. It's okay, but it's not it's very that, Christmassy. It's not okay. You could listen. It's Christmassy. Just because it doesn't say hickory honey ham every three <laughs> sentences doesn't mean it's not Christmassy. Well, there were zero instances of them saying Luther in this, so. Not only that, just because they didn't say Free Frosty, <laughs> yeah. or there wasn't any Carol of the Bells, doesn't nope. mean, you know what's more Christmassy than that? John Barry playing, you know, having somebody play the Moog synthesizer for him. It's true. But that's, that's okay, you know, it's alright. It was it was Christmassy enough for this, for this show, so. Give it what what did you think of John Barry's score for this film? I think it's good. I like the uh, the opening like synth score to it, and then the Bond the Bond uh, theme itself is actually really good too. Um, but uh, yeah, I like the I like the synthiness to it. I, think it. I do. Lo- it's it's probably my favorite Bond score of all time too. I think the addition of the Mook synthesizer is really great. Works well. Just like that, especially. I really love the intro to this film, like the, you know, the credits for the film. I think this, you know, the s- score for that is great. Disappointed in the actual pre-title sequence, though, because it just l- kind of looks like shit, because it's just, like, rehashed, you know, like, hey, remember, f- remember Thunderball? Here's a picture of Thunderball! And, like, hey, you remember this? Here's a picture from Goldfinger! Have you, remember Honor Blackman? She's here! You know, I did want to point out too the uh, the very pointy nipples in the introduction. Oh, oh yeah, they were bare titted in that. Yeah. All right. So on a scale of zero to ten, wet outdoor beds. What would you give? On <laughs> Her Majesty's Secret Service. I'm gonna give it a ten out of ten. <laughs> I love this film. I think it's great. It's a perfect film. Even though it's not perfect, there's imperfections in it. It's a incredibly fun romp. The action is great; still holds up today. It's well paced. A two hour and twenty minute film. It doesn't feel like a slog. It's got a great story. It's a great spy thriller. I think Lazenby does a good enough job as Bond. Is he perfect? Absolutely not. But I think, given time, could have been. The best Bond. Because he has the presence. He has the physicality. All the action sequences he's involved in are great. 
the action throughout is great. Like I said, like the ski chases in this film are great. They're none to be better. Him escaping peace glory is great. None to be better. I think the setup is great. Diana Rigg is the best Bond girl. Is she the most attractive? Um, maybe not. But she's the best actress, the one you can connect with the most. She feels like a human being, just like everybody else in this film. The score is great. The everything about like again, like even like the imperfection in this film still make it great. This film is perfect. It's not just a perfect Bond film. It's a perfect film. It's well paced. It's well thought out. There's a lot of things going for it. Honestly, I could probably talk about it, you know more, but I I love it, and I recommend anybody who's interested in the Bond franchise or just spy films in general to watch it or action films because it's. It's a masterclass on how to do great things, but also be minimalistic in it too. Telly Savalas is also great as Blofeld. He's menacing, charming, smarmy. Comes off as a physical equal to Bond because of his size and his presence compared to Donald Pleasance. It's just a great fun ride. I love it. 10 on 10. It's one of my favorite films of all time. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. I think it's a good movie. I think it's a very, um, very entertaining throughout, uh, especially as we get to like the last hour of the movie that just, you know, continues to deliver action scene after action scene. Um, the espionage is pretty good and it does have a lot of the elements of the spy thriller, uh, you know, kind of, um, uh, what, what you would expect from, you know, an Ian Fleming type novel, really pulpy at times um, re- more realistic than some of the other Bond movies, which uh, tend to get a little bit, you know, uh, cheesier at times uh, or comedic. This one has a, a nice mix of that, and I, I truly appreciated that. Um, I think it runs a little long. I think it probably could have cut a little bit, um, but... You're wrong. No, I, I, think it, I think it stands <laughs> to lose, you know, lose a little bit here, but... Uh, other than that, I think it's a really fun movie, and you know, for for espionage thriller, um, I think everybody did a good job. And it is unfortunate that George Lazenby did not reprise his role as uh, James Bond because I do think he did a pretty good job here. You know, and, and and does make the part well. So, how would you compare him to the rest of the Bonds that you've seen? Um, you... how would I compare him? Um. I think he's probably in the top of the bonds that I've seen. Um, I like this. I like the suaveness that he has more than like Daniel Craig has, um, because I do see that more as a, as a bondiness than than Craig. Um, I so, agree with that. I mean, I think I think he has like the both the swagger, the suaveness, and also too like the a little bit of the the comedicness at the heart of bond because he doesn't take everything super seriously and i i like that i think that that all works really well so he's probably in the top of top tier of bonds that i've seen i'd agree with that as much as i like craig craig's too brooding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know uh and definitely got that fine balance of beefcake suave smart you know not well not smarmy he doesn't really have smarmy but Mm -mm. i mean just uh 
nice little quips and like I said, like his most prominent f- features is the fact that he's a vulnerable bond. And the only one that ever comes close to that is Craig in Casino Royale, where, you know, after uh Le Chief gets capped and he's throwing in the sheets with Eva Green, you fucking bastard. But uh you know, like, the rest of the franchise never even bothers coming close to that. Because none of the other Bonds you could ever imagine that. Could you ever imagine Roger Moore being vulnerable like that? No. Or Connery? No. Mm-mm. Because they wouldn't allow themselves to be. They're veterans. They're, you know, been around the block, you know. Those Bonds have been through what this Bond has experienced. Whether, you know, it's tied to continuity or not. They already have been, so... You don't have to imagine more going through that or Connery going through that. So, all right. So we got to end this podcast by doing a combination of the Do You Freestyle West and East Coast in one drink. I've been drinking it right now. Yeah, I've been drinking it, and what I will say, combining them, because I think you do get the best (laughs) of both worlds. Um, you get, you get a toned down juiciness, a little bit more of the um, dryness, and those come together to basically make a very, very similar tasting beer <laughs> to the other two, but just maybe a little bit more nuanced with the juiciness is my my official rating on that. That's them just wanting you to buy both. Otherwise, they would have made that. <laughs> well, do you agree? Do you agree? Like maybe it's a little bit more juicy when combining them, but effectively, it is the same taste. No, it it is more juicy, but it's also a little bit more rosiny, like the East yeah. Coast. So it's like, yeah, you get both of them, and it's like that's what I should have paid for. True. I I don't know if I like would necessarily want this combined into just one beer. Um. Maybe it's a little bit more balanced than both together. Um, but, you know, I think either way, out of the three d- different styles that we just tried, you know, West Coast, East Coast combined, I think they're all very good, but they're all very samey. And there's really not a lot of um, distinguishing characteristics to, like, really point to say, like, yes, I would... I, I, I really like this one in particular. It's really so close that it's, you know, I don't know that most people would, would notice a, a huge difference. Look at that. Peace Gloria is still a restaurant to this day, so we should go I want the steak, to... Peace Gloria. What is that? I need it. I love steak. How do, they, how, does the, how do they make it in the Swiss Alps? I don't know. We'll have but to find out. Sh- we should probably go. Yeah. By the way, also, best Bond uh, hideout of all time as well. Bee's Glory is fucking great. Mm, it is true. It's, it's a very cool place. All right, so next up on our uh, podcast for Festivus series is Trading Places. Trading Places. Um, this is going to be a f- kind of a fun one and, and also kind of um, spans the gap of time between like Thanksgiving and New Year's because... Trading Places is not just a Christmas movie. It actually has parts of New Year's, too. So we're going to get it all in, in one one nice film. 
<clears throat> I think you forgot the most important part. What's that? It's John Lance film. It is true. It is a John Lance film. I've actually I've only seen that movie once. So I don't um, know how you've only seen it once. I've seen it like seven times. Wow. Just to play no. on Comedy Central all the time. No, I've only seen it one time. I don't. I, this is this is quite a while ago too. So I don't remember it that well. But uh, I'm excited to relive it. It's back when Eddie Murphy used to be a blockbuster star. Mm-hmm. Yep. One of these days we'll do. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop, so we can do Bronson Pinchot month. I know. I've never seen any Beverly Hills Cop. Which is funny, because you own a copy. <laughs> I know. Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yeah. What was that supposed to be? It was supposed to be uh, Jason X. Or no, I'm sorry. <laughs> not Jason X. It was um, uh, Jason Goes to Hell. See? You won out. Yeah. What's what's more important to have? Beverly Hills Cop 3 or Jason Goes to Hell? Yeah. I know. All right. So... Let's let's finish this up. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed our episode on Her Majesty's Secret Service, even though it wasn't super Christmassy. Um, if you did like it and you want to listen to the next episodes in our Festivus series, you can tune in to us on pretty much any podcasting app you can think of. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Homebase at Anchor.fm, Good Pods. Uh, subscribe to us. Leave us a nice review. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just find us on there. Search Blood and Black Crumb Podcast. Appreciate your follows and likes and stuff. And then we have an email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com where you can write to us, let us know what you like, what you don't like, what movies you want to hear us cover, and we'll take that into consideration. And then finally, you can donate to us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bloodandblackrumpodcast. Anything you can donate is uh, really appreciated by us. We'll put it back towards beer. So thanks a lot for listening. I uh, hope you have a happy holidays so far and uh, hope to see you back for our episode on Trading Places. Until then, take care.